Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy to us. We pray that you would help us to honor you as we look at your word. And we pray that you'd open it up to us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Testing. I don't know. Are we okay? Is it high enough for you to actually hear me? Because it sounds low to me, but I can't tell. Okay. Maybe up just a bit. Well, good morning, everybody. We are um, moving on from having two weeks in uh, Acts 15, where we saw the, um, the Council of Jerusalem, and we saw the, the problem, uh, the polity, how, they, how the churches came together to discuss the issue of the elders and the leadership and the churches themselves, and the um, principles that were at stake. Really, the heart of the gospel was at stake with the Jewish Christians wanting to have the Gentiles have to live like Jews in order to be Christians. And then we saw the pastoral response to that, the letter that was sent to the churches and how that was binding and pastoral and um, in the end created peace. And um, one thing I want to say about all of that that I didn't say over those last two weeks. So the title, right, of this second part, how I've titled it, is to the remotest part of the earth. That's really what's happening in Acts 13 to 28. Acts 28, the Apostle Paul ends up in Rome, right, at the very center of the the Gentile world, you could say, of his world. And this thing that happened in Acts 15, the the decision of the Council of Jerusalem, had to happen like that in order for that to happen, right? In order for the gospel to really have freedom among the Gentiles, it had to be broken free from those, um, uh, those, those Jewish traditional uh, cultural bonds, for lack of a better term, all right? Does that make sense? So Acts, the, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 is incredibly significant. It's why you and I are sitting here today as believers in Jesus. Most of us. No, I think all of us. As Gentiles. Okay, it's a turning point. It's a, it's a problem that had to be figured out. And the Holy Spirit um, moved through the workings of the officers of the church through that process and... Actually, what happens historically is um, within another, I don't have the timeline, within decades, the, the church is predominantly Gentile and very much minority uh, Jewish, which is still the case today. Okay. Why are you laughing? There's two right there. Now they're, now they're with us. All right. So, Okay. You all, you all with me? That, what happened, that decision is incredibly important. It allows the gospel to go unhindered to the ends of the earth. And here we are, the ends of the earth, if you're standing in Jerusalem. Okay? Now, what we're actually doing today, there's a part, little, little end of chapter 15 that kind of changes the subject, and then we're going to read, we're going to cover 15 through the end of 16. And we don't have time to actually read all of that up front, so we're going to read it in chunks as we go through. 
All right, so that's kind of weird, but we'll do it that way. So Acts 15, starting in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So see what's happening here. The fight in Antioch is over. The Council of Jerusalem resulted in peace and encouragement for the believers, both Jew and Gentile alike. Acts 15.35, so the verse right before this says, But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. Um, but now the, the Apostle Paul is getting restless, right? He's getting restless. He and Barnabas had come back to Antioch. They'd gone the first missionary journey. They had been sent out by this church in Antioch. They, they traveled. We looked at that. They came back to report uh, on the success of that first missionary journey to the Gentiles and to be refreshed and, and rested. And while they were there, that's when the whole dust-up happened with the, with the Jewish Christians about circumcision and, and the ceremonial law and Gentiles. So that all happened while they were home on furlough. Right? They were home trying to rest, and then this whole blow-up happens. So they have to deal with that. Uh, now that's over. Now the dust is settled. Now what? Well, he says, uh, after some days, verse 36, Paul says to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. See how they are. Let's, let's make our rounds. Let's go... Let's tend these little saplings. You know, most of, the pla- most of the places they had been, they'd been a very short time. Planted a church, got ran out of the city. At one point, remember, Paul gets stoned, left for dead. He's not like establishing the work in these cities. He's, it's like drive-by, you know, church planting, you know. And so he's like, look, we got to go back and see how they are. Let's strengthen and encourage them. Now, notice something about the methodology of the Apostle Paul here. Um, The Apostle Paul never travels alone. He always has at least two types of men with him. Uh, One would be an older man, a colleague, and, uh, uh, you know, someone who's who's on a level with him in age and experience, and another apprentice, for lack of a better term, a son, a young man, an older man, a younger man. An older, experienced man to give strength, a younger, energetic man to help carry the load, probably literally sometimes, and be trained for the ministry. So they always have two types of men with him. And at least that, you read through the book of Acts and you see he always has a band, you know, a group with him, helping him in the work. But there's a, there's a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas about which younger man should go with him. And that's verse 37. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Now, who is John Mark? John Mark is uh, obviously a young man. He's a native of Jerusalem. We see that in in both the Gospels and in Acts. He's the one who wrote, ultimately, the, the Gospel of Mark. 
His mother is Mary. There's lots of Marys in the, in the Gospels. He's, his mother is one of the Marys, right? Uh, who hosted the prayer meeting that was surprised when the Apostle Peter knocked on the gate. Remember that in Acts 12? Uh, the Apostle Peter is in prison, about to be executed by Herod. The angel lets him out. He ends up at the, at the gate, and the servant girl Rhoda says it's a ghost, and she goes up and reports it. That's Mary's house. That's Mark's house. That's Mary's, that's Mark's mother's house, okay? That's what, uh, that, so she's a prominent woman. She has a place big enough to have a, a place to gather all these Christians and to have a servant. All right, so that's, that's the context that Mark grows up in. He is Barnabas's cousin or nephew. Uh, Colossians 4.10 says Barnabas's cousin Mark. And that word cousin, I actually I think nephew is a better translation of it. So some close relative of Barnabas. That's important. And so Paul and Barnabas picked Mark up in Jerusalem when they were back there delivering the offering from Antioch, if you remember from Acts 13, um, or not Acts 13, but earlier. And then they took him on the first missionary journey. So there's a young man. Paul is in the habit of taking a young man with him. His, his apprentice, his, his son in the faith, he takes him with him. They go on this trip, but then what happens? Oh, yeah, there's a map. I'll come back to that. Now, Paul and his companions, this is back in 13. Now, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them. This is John Mark. He left them and returned to Jerusalem. So, let's go back to that map. They're early on on the trip. This is, not, this is the map of the second missionary journey that we're talking about today. But on the first missionary journey, they come from Antioch, they come down to Cyprus, they end up in Perga, and then Mark goes home. All right? Now, Luke doesn't tell us why John Mark left. John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He doesn't say why, right? Um, but clearly, from our passage today, Paul thinks that was a failure of Mark's, right? Clearly, he thinks this is a failure. This was a problem. He says Mark deserted us. Um, it, it probably wasn't something just like a sickness. It's, it's not something that, that Paul, Paul could have said, well, yeah, I understand. I mean, he was, he was sick. He was about to die. He had to go home. Or his mother was sick, and he had to go. You know, there was no excuse for it. He wasn't, um, probably, it, wasn't, it was just that he flaked out. He wasn't willing to endure the hardship of the journey or the persecution that he knew was coming. In other words, he was either lazy or a coward. And so whatever the reason... Uh, John Mark abandoned the missionary band and went back home. And Paul held him guilty, culpable for that, okay? And so, again, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark along with him. Paul kept insisting, not suggesting, but kept insisting, not just once, kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. 
And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus. So what's going on? Well, obviously, Barnabas has a soft spot for Mark. Barnabas is the kind of guy that would have a soft spot. He had a soft spot for Paul. Remember back in the beginning? He's the one guy who like takes him in and says, no, really, you can trust him, and takes him around Jerusalem, even though he had been persecuting the believers. So that's the kind of guy Mark, Barnabas is. He's the son of encouragement. That's what that name means. And Mark, remember, is Barnabas's cousin or more likely his nephew. So there's a, there's a family relationship there. But Paul is not willing to take a deserter on this trip. There's too much at stake. Um, we can't have this, thing, this kind of thing happen again. We need a reliable young man. Yes? And I always think of this text as an example of how good men can disagree. Well, we'll get to that. You're right. Oh, you're going there. Well, of course I'm going there. <laughs> Are you an old preacher? <laughs> no, I'm not an old preacher. <laughs> Older than it used to be. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 25, 19. And maybe the Apostle Paul was thinking about this, this idea, certainly. says this, like a bad tooth. Anybody ever had a bad tooth? You can't rely on it, right? You can't put any weight on it. You can't put any pressure on it. Like a bad tooth and an unsteady foot. Some of you have unsteady feet is confidence in a faithless man in the time of trouble. Right? Like a bad tooth or an, or, or an unsteady foot is confidence in an unsteady man in a time of trouble. And that's what Mark was. And Paul's like, no way. We're not going to do that again. We're not taking him. He had his chance, and he blew it. And we need someone reliable. So that's why he keeps on insisting. And so there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. This word, actually this word, these two words, sharp disagreement, is one word in the, in the Greek, and it's paroxysm. You know what that means? Like a spasm, like a, a convulsion, an eruption, an explosion. This is not just a, oh, well, come on, we can disagree, we can agree to disagree. This is an explosive disagreement. That's what the word means. Sharp disagreement. And uh, so they, they're at an impasse. They can't, they can't move on. There's, it's impossible. They're both settled. And so the only, the only possible solution is for Paul and Barnabas to go their separate ways. Now, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Bad thing or good thing? Hmm? Well, yeah, so the fact is it's both. It's both. Um, the bad, it's bad in that they couldn't come to an agreement about this. I mean, this, the, remember, the best men are just men. Okay? And these are the best men from Antioch. That's why, they, that's why the church sent them. But they're, they're just men. Uh, back in chapter 14, when... Uh, Paul was speaking to the pagans there who wanted to sacrifice to them as if he was Zeus. Remember this? He says, we are just men of the same nature as you. 
Okay? And that's actually true. Paul was not some super being. He was just a man. Barnabas was too. Short and crabby, you say? Well, I don't know if it's crabby. Maybe. I mean, he was a Jew. Yeah. Um, maybe Paul was too hard on Mark. More likely, Barnabas is too soft on Mark. All right? But you don't want to say, well, whatever, whatever Paul does is pure. No, he's a sinner. And, and the, the, surely there was sin in this um, blow-up. You know, it doesn't appear that they ask anybody for help to mediate. It doesn't, uh, surely there, was heart, there were harsh words used with each other. Okay, well, that's bad. And yet, as a couple of you mentioned, it's a good that the end result of this dispute was a doubling of missionary activity. Now there are two teams, not just one. We know that God used the sufferings of the apostles to further the gospel. Here we see that he also uses the quarrels of the apostles to, fur- to further the gospel. You know, God, is, God is not surprised by this. And it's, in the end, something that turns out, perhaps you could say, for the better. And so... We shouldn't be alarmed and scandalized when good men have different opinions, right? They're good men. Barnabas is a good man. He's making the kind of error, he's making the, if it's an error, and I think it's an error, I think Paul is probably right in the principle here, but Barnabas is a good man who's making the kind of error you'd expect his kind of goodness to make. Does that make sense? He's the son of encouragement. Come on. Give him another chance, you know? So you'd expect him to make that kind of error. And you'd expect Paul to be very intense about this. You'd expect him to make that kind of error. So, sometimes even Barnabas and Paul can't work together anymore. And so Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord, and he was traveling through Syria, Cilicia, and strengthening the churches. Um, We don't hear about Barnabas anymore in the book of Acts. Okay, that's one thing. The other thing is, look, it's clear that the church in Antioch sees Paul as the, um, the the continuation of their missionary team. He's the one who is sent away, Paul chose Silas, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Does that make sense? In other words, Barnabas breaks off and does his own thing. Paul is still under the official um, oversight of, of the church in Antioch. He's the one that continues the original mission. So that helps us understand also who's probably at fault here in the principle. Now, we don't hear about, Mark, about Barnabas anymore in the book of Acts, uh, but, uh, but it's not the last time we hear about John Mark in the New Testament. So Colossians 4.10, the Apostle Paul, um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Philemon, 
23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demons, Demas, uh, not Demons, Demas, Luke, yeah, my fellow workers, he calls them, including Mark. 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Now, the second missionary journey that we're starting on right now in in Acts 15, when Paul rejected John Mark as a companion, started about 50 AD, all right? About 50 AD is when that, when Paul said, no, no, there's no way I'm taking that man with me. It's about 50 AD. Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon about 10 years later, around 60, 61. He wrote 2 Timothy at the end of his life, about 67. All right? So there's about 10, 10 years between no way to Mark and these words. If he comes to you, welcome him, my fellow workers. About seven years later, he is useful for, to service for me. So what do we learn from that? Yeah. Mark grew up. What we learn is that Mark grew up. Not just that Mark, it's not that Mark continued to be a failure. Mark became useful to him. All right? So it's not, it's not just that he uses, he, he, he took a failure and changed him and made him better. Mark became useful. And the other thing we learn is that the Apostle Paul, what? Yeah, he forgave him. He recognized that. He saw, okay, yeah, I was right. You were, it would have been a bad idea to take you with, with us probably. But now look, okay, you learned a lesson. You, you get the idea. I get the idea. I, I suspect none of this would have happened if Paul would have taken him. Right? He needed that discipline. That's speculation, but I know how men work, and I think that's probably what happened. So, let's move on. Any thoughts? Let's keep going. Because we, we got... Uh, Now we're into chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. So Paul hits the road with Silas, no young man. Silas is is an older man like Paul. They don't have a younger man. So Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. I'll show you a map of that in a second. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. So this is the new Mark. All right, Timothy's the new Mark. Timothy is the new young man. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles in the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, and by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem, for them to observe... Remember the, that decree, that letter was binding on the churches as they're moving through all the churches. doesn't matter that it's not Antioch or Jerusalem. It's binding on all the churches. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now let's look at where we are here. So uh, this is where they begin the second journey again. They'd gone down Jerusalem and back, Council of Jerusalem, they're back again. They're leaving, they go... Uh, Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. 
That's where, Mark, that's where Barnabas is from. Paul is from Tarsus, so that's where he goes. He goes up through here. And then it says they keep going and they go to Derby and Lystra. So these little towns right here, right? And in Derby, they meet this guy, Timothy. Timothy's mother is a Jew and his father is a Gentile. And so that means Timothy would not have been entitled to Jewish circumcision because the covenant comes through the father. That's why Timothy is not circumcised. We'll come back to that in a second. But look at his upbringing. Uh, what kind of home did Timothy grow up in? What do we know about it? Paul tells us a couple of things. 2 Timothy 1.5 For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, talking to Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it's in you as well. So, he grows up in a believing home. But what kind of believing home? It's divided. We never, ever hear of his father. We, the only thing we hear about his father is he's a Greek. Right? The faith is in his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Then again in chapter 3, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, your, your grandmother and your mother, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy grows up in a half-Christian home. Probably the grandmother lives there with him. But the father is not a Christian. And yet he learns the sacred writings, he learns the scriptures that are able to make him wise to salvation through Christ from his grandmother and his mother. And Paul points this out, reminds him of this twice. There's never a mention of his father except to say that he was a Greek. Now, what's interesting about that? A couple of things. The same thing is true of Mark. Remember Mark? What do we know about Mark's father? Anything? Nothing. So he's either dead. All we hear about in, in the Gospels and in Acts about Mark is his mother, Mary. She's running the, she's running the house. So either his father is dead or t somehow out of the picture, right? So you have Mark grow, grows up with a probably fatherless somehow. Timothy certainly is not learning the faith from his father. And these are the men that the Apostle Paul takes with him. Right? You get the impression when you read Paul's letters to Timothy that Timothy was uh, timid. That he was insecure about his authority. This is why the Apostle Paul's always telling him things like, Oh, I don't know. Don't be timid. <laughs> you know? Oh, I wonder. Do you think he was timid? Why would he have to keep saying that to him? Don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Don't let anyone look down on you for your youth. That's what you would expect with a man like Timothy. Raised by women. In the truth. And yet, right? He needs a man. And 
So the Apostle Paul comes to Derby. There are believers here. And he, he saw something in this young fatherless man, Timothy. I want that young man to come with me. I will become his father. And that's what he calls him over and over again. My son. You're my son. Right? I will train him up. I will shape him. I'll make him both a man and a faithful shepherd. That's what he does. Now, something very strange happens here, especially in light of the last chapter. Did you notice this? Um, He took him, Paul took Timothy, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. Wait a minute. Yeah, so why is that weird? That's weird because what had just happened in, in the Council of Jerusalem was Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. But here, the, the very next thing he does is he circumcises Timothy. But is Timothy a Gentile? Sort of. Covenantally, he's a Gentile. He's not, he's not, his father is not a Jew. And yet he's Jewish enough that this would have been scandalous to the Jews, it says in the region, right? The, the Jews who were in those parts, because everybody knew that his father was a Greek. And since his father was a Greek, they knew that he wasn't circumcised. But the Apostle Paul takes him and circumcises him. Not because it will save him, but so that the Jews will listen to him. So the Jews will listen to him. So the Jews will actually give him a hearing, not automatically, you know, reject him. Do you remember Paul's principles and practices here? We see he, he spells them out, and this is what he's applying to Timothy in 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to this. He says, For, all, for though I am free from all men... I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. That's the principle for Timothy. Timothy, buddy. You get the idea, Timothy's not going to desert Paul anymore. I mean, he's not going to be a mark. He's got pardon the expression, skin in the game. (laughs) Sorry, but it's, come on. All right, all right. He became as a Jew, so that he might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. You see this working itself out throughout the book of Acts from here on. To those who are without law, as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who were without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all means I may save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I might, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. It, it, You know, I'm making light of this, but it's seriously, seriously. This is a serious thing for for Timothy to, to be willing to do. And it shows... Timothy's faithfulness. And this is what Paul is always saying about Timothy. Right? He's found his man. So, keep reading. Verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So wait, 
Let's see where we are here. So we're starting here. They leave out from Derby and Lystra. They go up this way. And they try to come up into here. And they try to go into here. And they keep trying to go. We don't, we're not told how the Holy Spirit forbids them. But somehow, he tells them, no, don't go there. I don't want you going there. I don't want, what does that mean? I don't want the gospel going there right now. That's weird. But the Holy Spirit, God, is, is sovereign over the direction of the gospel. And so he says no. And, and they come down to Troas. See that? Right on the, right on the coast. Go back. And so down in Troas, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, Macedonia is here, right? This is over in Greece. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You notice the, um, the pronouns now? Now it's we and us. So what does that tell you? That, no, it tells you that Luke comes on board in Troas. All right, now he's the author. Luke is the author. Up to this point, it's they and them, and now it's we and us. He, he, he joins the team in Troas. And there's a vision of a man standing, standing from Macedonia, standing and calling them, please come and help us. Well, there's your, there's your direction. We couldn't go there. We couldn't go there. Now we know where to go. And so immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, the island, and on the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. So when you have a vision, and it's a guy from Macedonia saying, come help us, you go to Philippi. That's where you go. That's the, that's the, that's the kind of the chief city of Macedonia. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. All right, let me give you a little background. There's, there are not enough Jewish men in Philippi to have a synagogue, right? If there were 10 Jewish men over the age of 10, I think it is, I can't remember, you have, you have enough to have a synagogue. There aren't enough Jewish men, adult males, to have a, um, a synagogue. So there, it's this informal place of prayer, and it's predominantly women, apparently. Okay? And so we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this woman is, uh, this is another weird situation. This is like a, 
uh, another uh, husbandless home, right? This, the, the woman is the head, Lydia is the head of this household. She's probably a Gentile. She's, she knows enough about the Old Testament to be a worshiper of God. She's hanging out with these Jews as they're praying. But she's a Gentile. And uh, she's a businesswoman. She's successful. Yeah, she has a household. She's the head of the household. There, is, there does not appear to be a husband. And what does it say about her? What happens? She's listening to Paul and Silas, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Right here. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. Right? That's what has to happen. That's what has to happen for anybody to respond to the gospel. The the Lord has to do a work that changes what she loves, changes what she, um, who she trusts. This is that's regeneration. He gave her a new heart, opened her heart, so that she could respond to the things spoken by Paul. And then she and her household were baptized. And then she says, you've got to come and stay with us. All right, now we've got to run. We have five minutes. There's a lot more to say about that, but let's keep going. It happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Right? So this is a, um, this is a woman who has a spirit, the, uh, the Greek word underneath the spirit of divination thing is a python, a, uh, a python spirit. It's the same kind of spirit that would have been in the, um, the Oracle of Delphi. That's what it was called. So this is a real thing. This is so real, obviously, people, the, her masters are able to actually make a profit by her fortune telling. This is not some kind of parlor trick. This is a demon, Right? who really is inhabiting her, who really is somehow able to tell the future such that, um, you know, you can, you can put the, the bet on the right horse or whatever. I don't know how they're making money, but they're making money. You see that? If this was a, if this was a fake, it wouldn't work. All right, so this is real. Um, and following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It's the kind of thing that you see in the Gospels all the time with the demons, the demon-possessed, and the demons saying, I know who you are. You're, you're Jesus. You're the Son of God. And Jesus says, Shut up. I don't, want to, I don't want to hear it from you, you know? And this is true. These are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. Shut up! And turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. It's interesting. It it took him getting annoyed before he did anything. (laughs) I command you in the name of of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. This is a real deal. This is not some kind of fake um, fairy tale. 
But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The great thing about Philippi, there was a Roman, a Roman colony. They were very proud of their Romanness, right? So they're Jews, we're Romans. They're throwing our city in confusion, actually. What's the real problem? What's the real problem? Why are they really upset? Our hope of profit is gone. They, they, they killed the, the, the goose who lays the golden egg. Right. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely, and he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We just have to run through and read it. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. That's what you would do if you'd just been beaten and were in the stocks in prison, right? Yeah. In the dungeon. So they're praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. Now that's not natural. This isn't a normal earthquake that makes your chains fall off. You know, locks don't work that way, right? You just shake them real hard and they open. No. So this is God. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because that's what would have happened to him anyway, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, why does he ask that question? All the, none of this is normal, right? There's an earthquake. The doors open. The chains fall off. Well, what's even more abnormal? They're all still there. They didn't leave. Right? And so the jailer knows enough to know, all right, and he's heard enough to know that this is a question I can ask and get a good answer for from these men. How, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them, to him, together with all who were in his house. So he gathers his house together and his household, all the people in his house, wife, children, servants, everybody, that's the household. And maybe father, mother, who knows, brings them all together. He preaches to them and they believe. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. Now they're not just prisoners, they are brothers. And he washes their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So they heard the preaching and they believed. Now, the end of the story here. When day came... The chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. We don't intend to keep them. We beat them, put them in the stocks overnight. You can let them go. 
And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, "Uh Uh-uh. No. They have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and they have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? Just hush, 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 go away. No, no indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. Let, let the governor, let the, let the mayor, let the chief of police, let the city council, let them all come and make a public show of acknowledging that what they did was wrong. It was against the law. Remember, Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. They're not just some rabble. You know, they're not just Jews. They're Roman Jews. And this was totally against the law. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. Please don't cause any more trouble. We don't want trouble. Please just go. And they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Why did Paul do this? He, think about this. This is the only, one of the only places, there's a couple, probably a couple more, where he, he, he lays down the Roman citizen card. He'd already been beaten. He's not afraid of being beaten. He's been beaten many, by the end of his life, he's been beaten over and over and over and over and over again, right? Sometimes left for dead. Why does he stand up for his rights in this case? Aaron, do you have a thought? Exactly, that's what I think. For the sake of the church. For the sake of the church. You're not, no, you're not allowed to treat us that way. That's illegal. We're not going to just be the people that you walk over and crush when it's against the law. We're going to stand up and we're going to use the law and we're going to fight for our, what is he fighting for? His rights as a Roman citizen. All right, now there's a lot to learn from that that we don't have time to get into because it's time to be done. But listen, the rule of law, okay, Christians don't just allow the government to trample them when they have a recourse, when they have a a course of, a path of appeal. The law is on their side, the law is on our side. Right? When, When the government says, nope, sorry, you can't say those words, you can't do that. There's a man in Canada uh, fined $55,000 for um, calling a man a man who thought he was a woman. All right? A transgender woman, I think is how you say that. Uh, fined $55,000 for quoting Scripture. Well, if that happens in America, guess what? That's against the law. And we don't just say, yes, well, we, we, we're going to be persecuted, and so we should just take it. Paul didn't just take it. Okay? All right. Well, we've got to be done. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us and give us wisdom. And give us faith like you gave to Paul and Silas and Lydia and Timothy. Help us to honor you and, and to be bold, to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, but also 
to be wise in how we interact with those in authority over us when they oppose us. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.